Welcome to Final Girl Friday. My name is Molly, and I like scary movies. Tonight, in honor of everybody's favorite holiday to hate, I'll be taking a long look at another one of my personal favorite slasher films, My Bloody Valentine, from 1981. Damn, the mine! Where people get killed and eaten. Where Harry Shut the fuck up! I'll also probably be peppering in a few of my thoughts on the remake from 2009, but I'm not going to devote an entire segment to it, as I already did that in my remakes episode from 2019. I thought maybe I wouldn't talk about the remake at all today, but then I said some pretty nice things about the Castle Freak remake a couple of weeks ago, and I don't take it back. I, I did enjoy that film a lot more than I thought I would, but it was also very uncharacteristic of me to be so forgiving of a remake, uh, and I feel like I need to recenter myself. To wrap up, I have some hilarious answers to this week's worst case scenario provided by you guys. Uh, we haven't done a worst case scenario in a long time, and what better time to revive the activity than a holiday? Before I can dive into all of that, I do have one point of interest, just one, it is completely stolen focus from all other news for me. As excited as I was for the trailer for Willy's Wonderland, I don't think I fully understood just what it meant to be excited by a trailer. Until yesterday, when Glenn Danzig unveiled the trailer for his latest opus, Death Rider in the House of Vampires. Hey, Ringo! <laughs> I don't think you want to come this way. I'm so excited about this movie. I'm so, I hate how happy I am. I know, I know it's gonna be bad. It might not be as bad as Veronica, because I don't think that anything really can or ever will be. But unlike Veronica, which in my opinion is just bad, Death Rider in the House of Vampires, <laughs> fucking love that title. I think this film actually does have the potential to be so bad it's good. What I had hoped to get from Veronica, I think we're gonna get in Death Rider. Although we have very few details at this point about the exact plot of Death Rider in House of Vampires, I always wanna see the full title, I'm sorry. <laughs> We don't know a whole lot about the exact plot of the film. What we know for sure is that Death Rider is Glenn Danzig's homage to spaghetti westerns and vampire horror. So the trailer begins with Death Rider, who is the main character of the film, played by former horror teen idol Devin Sawa. I haven't seen him in anything in like 15 years. Evidently, he has been doing a lot of television work. It's just not television that I watch, I guess. At the start of the trailer, he is leading a top naked woman through the desert, and he comes upon a giggling fanged out Danny Trejo, and that was it. That was all I needed to see. <laughs> Cowboy Devin Sawa coming across a vamped out Danny Trejo in the desert is all you need to get me to watch your movie. I am in. From what I understand, everyone in this film is a vampire, and there is a town to which Devin Sawa travels that is sort of lorded over by Count Holiday, played by none other than Julian Sands. But there's something terrifying about this place where all of these vampires live. They call it Sanctuary. And the naked woman that Death Rider was 
leading through the desert is apparently his price of admission. A virgin. That's that's what you need in order to get into this town. Obviously. Once he gets there, there are vampire women fighting over him. Um, there's a bar brawl. A vampire gets liquid silver poured down his throat. There doesn't really seem to be a whole lot of like a linear story, but I have I have faith that there will be once we actually you know get into the film. For a three minute trailer, it definitely features some cringeworthy acting moments. I think uh, the most notable being Ashley Wisdom mispronouncing the word y'all. I didn't realize was a thing that was possible. Um, and it definitely feels a little awkward, a little shoddily executed. I mean, you can tell that it has problems, but it also looks charming as fuck. I absolutely love the Dollars Trilogy inspired credit sequence. I feel like it could have used a better score. No offense to Glenn Danzig, as far as I'm aware, he did score the trailer. It just sounds more like he's trying to imitate Morricone rather than, you know, actually just paying homage to him with his own music. The, the score doesn't really kick the way that I want it to. A lot of people are saying that Glenn Danzig will also be starring in this film. Glenn Danzig himself has said that his role in the film as Bad Bathory is actually quite small, which I'm of two minds about. Part of me thinks that it's a good move that he didn't actually cast himself in a starring role. But the other part of me really enjoyed seeing him ham it up in the trailer and I would actually kind of like to see a lot of him in it. So I, I I don't know how I feel about it. This is what I'm wrestling with. Every time I compliment the film, I have to follow it up with an insult, which I then have to follow up with a compliment. I, I Three minutes and my head is just spun. We don't have a release date for this film yet, but I, for one, cannot wait to see Death Rider in the House of Vampires. So that's all I have for the news tonight. Just Death Rider. Without further ado, it's time to dive into the movie. If you're new to this podcast and you don't hate it, stay tuned until the end of this episode for information on Final Girl Friday Elsewhere. And as usual, if you have not seen My Bloody Valentine from 1981 or the remake from 2009, proceed with caution because I'm about to spoil both of these films for you. Alright, My Bloody Valentine, directed by George Mihalka and released on February 11th, 1981. The film was written by Stephen Miller and John Beard, produced by Telefilm Canada and distributed by Paramount Pictures. My Bloody Valentine tells the story of a group of young working class adults in a small coal mining town in Nova Scotia who just want to celebrate Valentine's Day. The problem is that in this town, aptly named Valentine Bluffs, Valentine's Day has been banned for roughly 20 years as a tragic incident resulted in several deaths and one former miner Harry Warden losing his mind. Of course, our main cast were kids when this happened, and they're determined to see the town move on with its life, organizing the first Valentine's dance in two decades. The legend of Harry Warden may very well be true, however, as those involved in the planning of the dance are gradually picked off one by one. And I mean that quite literally. Many of them are killed by a pickaxe. Much like Black Christmas, another fantastic holiday-themed Canadian slasher, My Bloody Valentine seems on its surface like a pretty straightforward horror film. But there are quite a few unique unique elements, things that, that really make this film a very special experience in a way that sets it apart from almost all of the other slashers of the decade. Instead of hyper-sexed teens in a suburban setting, you have, as I said, working-class young adults in a coal mining town. They have jobs, they have bills, they have debt, you know, they have very real problems that they're dealing with in addition to being murdered. And they are all of them. Every single character in this film is not just likable, 
but lovable. Th these are some of the most enjoyable characters that I think you will ever find in the slasher subgenre. This is sort of a go-to movie for me if I'm having a bad day or feeling my faith in humanity slowly slipping away from me. My Bloody Valentine never fails to cheer me up. Something else that makes this a standout slasher film are the SFX, which were done in part by the legendary Thomas Berman, who provided makeup effects for Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 1978, Halloween 3. He also created Sloth's makeup for the Goonies. He's since gone on to do tons of makeup work for Nip Tuck and Grey's Anatomy. He's an extraordinarily talented SFX artist. The unfortunate thing is that prior to 2009, the only version of the film that was available to audiences was the theatrical release. And because of the time in which My Bloody Valentine was filmed and released, which were the two months immediately following the death of John Lennon, the MPAA was cracking down hard on gratuitous violence in films, and they made an example out of My Bloody Valentine. They cut a significant amount of the violence from the film. It wasn't until Lionsgate released a special edition of the movie in 2009 with that footage restored that audiences really even knew just what a brutal film this really is. Everyone on the film was so proud of Berman's work. With good reason, you know? You have the town's doomsayer uh, stabbed through the face with a pickaxe with such force that it pops one of his eyeballs out of the socket. You also have one of my personal favorite characters in the film, Hollis, taking two nails to the head before he finally gets put down. One of the characters is even killed with the help of a pot of boiling hot dogs. This was a very inventive and impressive slasher film, and it's just sad to me that that aspect of the film took a while to make its way to audiences. I would say, though, that I do disagree with articles that I've read in the past that claim that the restored version of the film is a vastly superior one. I just don't entirely agree with that. Yes, it is a much better slasher film with the kills restored. Absolutely. I don't think that there's even a question of that. I do think that the film is still a fun and enjoyable watch, even with that footage removed. Little side note about the MPAA interference with this film. Not only did they force Mihalka to cut what he referred to as 95% of the FX in order to avoid an X rating, they also had him go back and cut and change certain sound effects as they felt that even that was too gruesome. So yeah, apparently the MPAA were, as they often are, on high alert in early 1981. Paramount Pictures was also disappointed in this film as it wasn't able to turn quite as big a profit as Friday the 13th, which came out the year before. And that's equally sad. I mean, they did like double their money. They made around $6 million at the box office, but it, it just wasn't enough to make Paramount happy. Despite these setbacks, however, My Bloody Valentine is often regarded as one of the better slasher films of the 80s and definitely one of the finest slashers to come out of Canada. It cracks me up. It warms my heart. I love the unique setting. It's also very well shot and it has one of my favorite scores from Paul Zaza, who I've talked about uh, previously on the podcast. He scored all of the original Prom Night films, as well as Curtains and Popcorn. And this, I think, is probably the best score that I have heard from him. And I'm not just saying that because there's a track on the score entitled Pickaxe Impalement Suite. One last thing to note before we walk through the film is My Bloody Valentine was shot in and around a functional coal mine called Princess Colliery in Sydney Mines, Nova Scotia. The mine had been shut down in the 70s, and it was at the time of shooting in the process of being turned into a mining museum, but a lot of the equipment down there still worked. So things that you'll see throughout the film, like the elevators and the mine carts, those things were functional at the time of shooting. And because they were shooting it in an actual mine, quite a few of these scenes take place about a thousand yards below the earth. One of my favorite facts about this film was that uh, the, the reason that Mihalka particularly favored 
the Princess Colliery was because of its uh, rustic appearance. But the people in and around Sydney Mines were so excited that a movie was going to be shot there that they banded together and raised $50,000 to have the mine cleaned and repainted, which... Poor George Michalka, um, it cost the production team $75,000 to restore the mine to its original dilapidated state. <laughs> it's so sweet though, man. I think that's so fucking sweet that the town was like, oh my god, we have to raise all this money so that we can clean the mine for the people to shoot in because it's all dingy and gross down there. And I just I just picture Michalka just sighing, maybe a hand to his forehead saying, no, no, it, it needed to be grungy and gross. How much is it going to cost to make this mine look like shit again? Anyway, my point is, my bloody bad. Valentine is a fantastic film and a must watch for this particular holiday. And I'm really looking forward to walking through it with you guys. So let's get started. So the film opens with one of my favorite shots, which is this off kilter angle from the ground as two fully geared miners walk toward the camera. This opening shot illustrates so well what a gem of a filming location this mine was. It's claustrophobic, it's creepy, it is rustic, and it's just, it's just neat to look at. The miners navigate various obstacles as they move deeper and deeper into the mines and eventually stop at a sort of large room. I don't really know what any of the terms are for specific parts of mines, but they're in a larger room than the narrow tunnels they were just in, and this appears to be their destination. They stop and look around. We get a great shot of one of the miners who walks directly to the camera, and we get this glint off of the light of his respiratory mask. And when they're satisfied that they are alone, the slightly smaller in stature miner disrobes to reveal that she is a shapely, mostly naked young woman with a very fake looking tattoo of a heart over her left breast. Unlike Lola's tattoo in Voodoo Moon, which was also an obviously fake tattoo of a heart, this one doesn't bother me because it serves a purpose. And I have to say there's something about a scantily clad woman wearing a respiratory mask that just does it for me. I love the image here. The woman slowly removes her respiratory mask, shaking her long blonde hair, and gives the other miner some serious come-hither eyes, uh, and he does go hither, and she begins undressing him and sensually caressing the hose on his mask. It's all very sexy. It's interesting to me here because this second miner, who we will learn in just a few short moments is the killer, he actually sets his pickaxe aside, like he sort of shoves it into the wall, which makes me wonder if he didn't actually come down here with the simpler intent of just sleeping with this woman. When she takes his gloved hand and places it over her left breast, we get a, a closer shot of that tattoo over her heart, and the miner looks down at it. We get an even closer shot, and we see that his hand is shaking. She doesn't notice that he's been triggered by her tattoo, and she is smiling as he grabs her by the shoulders and shoves her hard into the pickaxe that he had set aside. It stabs her through the back and comes right out through the heart tattoo in a very cool effect that we see much more of in uh, the restored version of the film. The woman screams and the camera zooms into her mouth, fading to black into a title card. And it's such a great title card too, because the word bloody, the O's are actually little puffy red hearts that are bleeding. It also says in the bottom right hand corner of this title card that it's copyright owned by Secret Film Company Inc. The working title of this film was The Secret and the identity of the killer was kept secret from the majority of the cast throughout the production. It was actually the only thing that I enjoyed about the remake of My Bloody Valentine was that they 
they changed the identity of the killer, which I felt was an excellent choice if the goal was to pay homage to the original, as not knowing who the killer is is a big part of this movie. I felt like changing the identity of the killer so that audiences, again, wouldn't know who the killer was in the remake was really like the only thing that they did uh, with respect to the fans. <laughs> Once the title card fades, we are in a different part of the mine. I personally believe that this is all happening on the same night, but we don't actually get any solid indication of how much time has passed between the incident that we just witnessed and what we're seeing now. But I think that what we saw took place in a different part of the mine on the same night. Either way, the night is Thursday, February 12th, which I think is fucking adorable because that would mean that Valentine's Day is Saturday the 14th. So a good portion of this film does, in fact, take place on Friday the 13th. We see a mining cart moving forward toward the camera with a group of miners. And as it slows down, some of them take off their masks and we get a few important character reveals. First, we have Axel, played by Neil Affleck, and then TJ, played by Paul Kelman. Full disclosure, I have an epic crush on Paul Kelman in this movie, and there will be commentary to that effect moving forward. I think he is a snarky Canadian smoke show. In addition to Axel and TJ, we're also introduced to a few of their co-workers, John, Mike, Hollis, and Hollis's mustache. They also mention a character named Howard, who is a mining apprentice, and I don't quite know what that means, uh, but we meet him a little bit later, and he's great. The guys hit the showers, where they chit-chat and roughhouse, and we learn a little bit. Um, TJ has been gone for a while and just got back into town, and his ex-girlfriend Sarah is now dating Axel. So we've established a bit of a love triangle, and they mention it's going to be a hot time on Saturday night. They all get dressed and rush out into the parking lot to jump into their cars and head back into town, and they do so to music that really shouldn't work. But in this context, it really does. <laughs> James A. Janice of Dead Meat referred to this particular scene as a Three Stooges moment, and he's he's very right. The, the guys are still roughhousing. They're just constantly roughhousing all the way to their cars. Contrary to what the music would suggest, this scene is actually a very grounding one in that it makes these characters seem very relatable. They're goofy, they're happy, and most importantly, they're actually friends. A very big problem that I have with contemporary slasher films is this tendency we have to throw a bunch of young, pretty people who have virtually nothing nothing in common apart from their age, together in an isolated environment, picking them off one by one as they bicker with each other, troll one another. There's no camaraderie. That's one of the things that I love most about My Bloody Valentine. They establish right away that these people are friends. They've probably all been friends for a very long time. And I think that that adds a lot of weight to the things that they go through. As they drive away, we learn that where they are working is the Hanager Mining Company, which is an important detail as it connects both the character of TJ and the mayor to this particular property. As the guys drive back, Back into town, we get another much larger and more garish sign welcoming them back to Valentine Bluffs, the little town with the big heart. Elevation 200, population 3,785. There's also a big blinking heart on the sign that makes me very happy. As they make their way further into town, we also see a big banner over what looks to be like the town's main street, promoting the big Valentine's Day dance, which will be taking place at Union Hall. This is the big to-do on Saturday night, and there are Valentine's Day decorations everywhere streamers and garland and big giant paper hearts or plastic hearts. There's a lot of fucking hearts in this movie. This town is dressed to the nines. At Union Hall, the girlfriends of the miners are putting up decorations, preparing for the dance. In bursts Howard with an air horn, followed closely by Hollis, Mike, John, TJ, and Axel. And a slew of Valentine's frivolity ensues. All of the guys go to their girlfriends and hug and kiss them in various adorable ways. Hollis's girlfriend, Patty, played by Cynthia Dale, is so happy to see him. And John John goes over to Sylvia, played by Helena Udi. 
I think, and picks her up by her head to kiss her. I just can't even explain how cute all this shit is, guys. Here inside Union Hall, uh, what the girls have been working so hard on um, is a complete assault on the senses. <laughs> it's just an excessive amount of Valentine's Day decorations, just so many hearts made out of every conceivable material. As the guys greet their lady loves, TJ leans ever so coolly against the wall with a beer and watches as Axel greets his girlfriend, formerly TJ's girlfriend, Sarah, played by Lori Hallier. Now, Sarah isn't one of my absolute favorite final girls. Uh, I think mostly because we don't really get to see a whole lot of her, and also because TJ and Axel are really the primary focus. Yes, she is the final girl of the film, but she isn't the main character. She's just sort of caught between the two main characters. But I do really like her performance of Sarah. I think she comes across as intelligent and compassionate and kind. And I feel for her. It's a pretty tough situation that she's in. TJ up and left town with no warning. She had no idea when he would be coming back. And while he was gone, she developed feelings for his friend Axel. And now TJ's back. Axel almost immediately goes on the defensive and becomes very protective of her. TJ is clearly still into her. All in all, I guess what I'm getting at here is that in terms of love triangles, which are often at the very bottom of the list of things I find interesting in movies, this one could actually be a lot more boring. Sarah and Axel have a slightly awkward exchange as Howard asks Gretchen out and she shoots him down. You see, Howard, I think, doesn't have a girlfriend because he isn't an official miner. He's a mining apprentice. Axel hits his head on a ladder, which cracks TJ up, and more hijinks ensue, which we leave behind to go back out to Main Street where Mayor Hanniger, TJ's father, and launderette owner Mabel, who I'm gonna say is the head of the decorating committee, are walking toward Union Hall. And it's here where we learn that they haven't had a Valentine's Day dance in Valentine Bluffs in 20 years. Mayor Hanniger does seem a little concerned about the dance, but not so much so that it's stopping him from celebrating. He and Mabel get to Union Hall, and out comes Howard with blood all over his head and face. He collapses into the mayor and scares Mabel so badly that she drops the box of Valentine's Day pillows that she was carrying. He isn't dead, however, or even hurt. He is just playing a prank. He cracks up, and the mayor orders him to help Mabel pick up her Valentine's pillows. The mayor heads into Union Hall, which instantly sets TJ on edge. We get the impression that he and his father do not have a good relationship. TJ gives him some attitude as he storms out of the building, and on his way out, he bumps into police chief Jake Newby, played by Don Franks. Don Franks is someone that I had never heard of prior to seeing this film, but he does have an enormous list of film and television credits. This man accomplished a lot throughout his career. Additionally, he could give Michael Wincott a run for his money in terms of most memorable speaking voice. You guys better put those things back where you found them, or I'll turn you both upside down, especially you. I would be perfectly happy if this man could just narrate my life for the entirety of it. Once TJ leaves, Axel remarks that he doesn't think TJ likes being back very much. And this is where we learn from Mayor Hanniger that TJ did in fact leave town to go out to the West Coast and whatever it was he was trying to do out there, he failed. And as long as he's back, he is still his son and will be working in the mine. Everybody looks kind of somber and uncomfortable, except for two other locals named Dave and Tommy who are making some sort of sweet, sweet love to this large Cupid cutout. Chief Newby tells Mayor Hanniger that they have a meeting in Centerville at seven o'clock, so they need to get going, so they take off, leaving Mabel in charge. Howard approaches Mabel, still covered in fake blood, or whatever the hell, I think it's just red paint, and she explains to him that the pillows she dropped on the ground outside are going to have to be rewashed. He says he's really sorry, and she forgives him because it's hard to stay mad at Howard. As Mabel walks off, Howard suddenly remembers that somebody left something for the mayor earlier in the day. He runs out to catch him before he leaves and hands him a heart-shaped Valentine's Day gift box. The mayor looks so happy about this gift, and they have a brief discussion 
information about who might have sent it. Howard doesn't know. He said it was there when he got there. And there's this great exchange where the mayor looks to Mabel and says, hey, did you send this? And she's like, no, it wasn't me. And then he looks to Chief Newby like, was it you? And Chief Newby gets immediately like, uh, no. As the mayor and the chief do have someplace else to be, they don't open the package right there outside of Union Hall. They take it with them into the chief's truck. While they're on the road, Mayor Hanniger opens the package. And as he does so, he talks about how much he loves Valentine's Day candy. And this is an excellent example of how really lovable characters enhance the horror experience because we know that whatever is going to be in that box is not going to be good. And it just breaks my fucking heart. When he opens the package, there is some tissue paper. And on top of that is a heart-shaped card. Inside the card is written an ominous poem. From the heart comes a warning filled with bloody good cheer. Remember what happened as the 14th draws near. He snatches up the tissue paper, and sure enough, there lies a bloody human heart. Chief Newby, who looks very unsettled, promptly turns the truck around while Mayor Hanniger slumps his head back against the seat and says simply, it can't be happening again. There's also a moment as the truck is driving away back into town that a dog runs out from somewhere and starts chasing the truck and barking at it and chases it for a little while and then gives up and turns around. And I don't know if that was planned, but I'm really glad they kept it in because again, it's yet another detail that just makes this feel real. Back in town at a bar called The Cage, Hollis and Axel are playing a game of Pinfinger, otherwise known as Stabberscotch or simply the knife game, which is widely regarded as a much stabbier version of Russian roulette, where you, you put your hand palm down on a table with your fingers apart, and then you use a knife or a pen, and you jab the knife into the spaces between your fingers, and you try to do this at increasing speeds without stabbing yourself. The inclusion of the knife game in this film was completely intentional. In an interview for the Without Your Head podcast back in 2008, Mihalka referred to himself and his fellow crew members at this time as a bunch of crazy kids who wanted to make the deer hunter of the horror genre, focusing more on working class characters with real problems. And the knife game was Mihalka's way of including their own little version of Russian roulette. Both Axel and Hollis are doing pretty well with a knife game at the start, and they both have smiles on their faces. Hollis looks undeniably cool with his giant mustache and a cigarette dangling from his mouth. And so Sarah is sitting there sort of watching it happen. Meanwhile, TJ is sitting at the bar where the bartender Happy, played by Jack Van Avera, is warning anyone who will listen about the dangers of celebrating Valentine's Day. Happy the bartender is essentially the crazy Ralph of My Bloody Valentine. He is the doomsayer, the one who is trying desperately to let everyone around him know that they're making a grave mistake, and no one, of course, is taking him seriously. Granted, he does come off as a little intense, much like Ralph came off as a little crazy, so you can't really blame people for not listening to him much. Oh, let him tell it. I love fairy tales. This ain't no fairy tale, little girl. He tells a confused-looking sailor, who actually just sort of seems like he's in the wrong movie, to beware of the 14th if you value your life. TJ gets bored and wanders off, but Happy just keeps going, as he leads into a flashback of the tragic event that led to the town swearing off Valentine's Day. 20 years earlier, on the night of the big Valentine's Day dance at Union Hall, seven miners were wrapping up their work for the day. Two supervisors and five sort of everyday workers. The five workers were down below in the tunnels, and the two supervisors were up above waiting for the rest of the guys 
this to come up. They were in such a hurry to get to the dance, however, that they left early and neglected to check the methane levels before they did so, which led to an explosion in the tunnels that buried the five miners alive. The town was, of course, unaware of this as they were having way too much fun celebrating Valentine's Day, including the supervisors. We get a nice shot of the supervisors living it up. And over the course of the next six weeks, Happy and the rest of the townsfolk dug through the tunnels to rescue the men. Eventually, they discovered that only one of the miners survived, Harry Warden. When they found him, he was neck deep in human flesh as he had been eating the fellow miners to survive. Harry Warden was then sent to a state mental hospital and a year later escaped, returning to exact his revenge. He murdered the two supervisors and left their hearts in heart-shaped boxes on the table of the Valentine's Day dance. We only see one of the supervisors killed, however, as he's getting dressed, presumably to go to that year's dance, and Harry slams him through the chest with a pickaxe and then rips out his heart. With the boxes came a note warning Valentine Bluff to never again celebrate Valentine's Day, lest they suffer the same fate. And so Harry Warden became a horrifying legend. During the flashback, we get some of the best cinematography in the film, in my opinion. We have a little bit of shadow play. There's this excellent wide shot of Harry wandering around through the mist, and it's just, it's very creepy and fun. Also, when we get back from the flashback, Sylvia and Gretchen, another one of the ladies of this friend group, are now standing like in very pensive poses at the bar, which they weren't before. And I like to think that they were just so enraptured by Happy's story that they sort of stood up and slowly moved like zombies closer to him. And we also get a tiny little audible jump scare from Happy as he says, it could be you. Happy urges them again to forget about the Valentine's Day dance. And suddenly Howard pops up from underneath the bar and offers a spirited raspberry in response. Most of our main cast is all gathered around a table now drinking Moosehead beer, which I'm not a drinker, which I realize is uh, a fairly rare phenomenon within the horror community, but I'm just not. And if I were a drinker, I doubt I would be much of a beer person. However, there is a lot of advertisement for Moosehead beer in this film, and I was curious about the company. Moosehead Breweries is Canada's oldest independent brewing company, and it can be found in St. John, New Brunswick. It was founded in 1867 and is apparently still privately owned and operated by the family that founded it. I think it's neat. I like how Canadian it is. I like how Canadian this entire film is. I just fucking love Canada. So the gang is sitting around the table getting drunk, singing a song about a woman losing her virginity, while TJ continues to lean ever so coolly against the jukebox, looking kind of surly, but also, you know, like a Canadian smoke show. Paul Kelman has stated that the only reason that he auditioned for My Bloody Valentine was because of his friendship with Keith Knight, who plays Paulus. Knight was on his way to audition for the film and invited Kelman along, and Kelman asked if he could crash the audition, to which Hollis was like, sure. Kelman went in there, nailed it, and got himself the lead. And I just find it so apropos. I feel like that's the perfect attitude to have to land a character like TJ Hanniger is to just sort of walk in and be like, hey, are we having an audition? Yeah, sure. I guess I'll see what I can do. Maybe I can crash. Oh, wait. Oh, I'm the lead? Ah, cool. I could go either way. <laughs> like, that's TJ Hanniger to me. Sarah excuses herself from the table to head over to the jukebox where she and TJ have a brief conversation about how it's TJ's fault that she's with Axel now, which he points out he never said it wasn't. And she tells him he needs to accept that things have changed. He tells her he doesn't like the changes and casually walks away. Over in Centerville, Chief Newby and Mayor Hanniger have traveled to the coroner's office to have the heart examined, and Newby is trying to reach Eastfield Hospital to find out if Harry Warden is still there. The administration office is closed, however, so he says he'll have to try again in the morning. Another fun fact about Don Franks, by the way, the actor who plays Chief Newby, he's wearing a wig, which I think is most noticeable in this scene, and I'm pretty 
pretty sure that they put a wig on him because he's playing a straight-laced small-town police chief, but the actor himself had really long hair, like down to the middle of his back. And additional fact, on Franks' back was an enormous tattoo of a buffalo. Franks was adopted into a native family at some point in his life. His nickname was Iron Buffalo. He was a jazz musician, and he apparently rode a Harley Davidson well into his 80s. In other words, John Franks was one of the coolest guys who ever lived. The wig doesn't look that bad, and I don't think I ever actually noticed it wasn't his real hair until I was told that it wasn't, and, and now I just can't unsee it. Having finished the examination, the coroner tells the guys the heart does belong to a human, a woman, approximately 30 years old, then asks what's going on over in Valentine Bluffs. The mayor explains it's possible that Harry Warden has returned. Then we cut to the killer, who may be Harry Warden, who knows? I don't know why I'm trying to keep it a secret. It's not Harry Warden. We only see his feet as he creeps slowly toward the dark toward Madame Mabel's laundrette. Mabel is inside, all by her lonesome, washing all of the Valentine's Day pillows that were dirtied up by Howard's prank earlier at Union Hall. She's also just admiring the decorations that she's put together, and she just looks so happy, much like everyone does in this film. And speaking of decorations, she has spared absolutely nothing at her laundromat. There are streamers and little cartoon cutouts of cupids. We watch Mabel from the killer's POV as she goes to one of the dryers and takes out a Valentine's Day pillow, checking to see if it's actually dry, which it isn't. So she puts it back in and then heads toward the back of the building. Once she's out of sight, the killer casually pushes open the laundrette door and walks toward one of the folding tables. He glances at a flyer promoting the dance and then gingerly sets another heart-shaped box on top of the folding table. He then hides behind a row of dryers and waits for Mabel to return, which she does. And much like Mayor Hanniger, she is super happy to see a little Valentine's Day gift sitting there for her. It's so fucking depressing. Everybody's so happy about their Valentine's Day presents. And then they're always human hearts, you know? She slowly opens the gift, wondering aloud who it might be from, calling out to someone named Jake. It took me many times of watching this film to put two and two together, but the Jake to whom she is referring in this scene is none other than Chief Newbie. And we get the impression, especially a little bit later, that there was definitely something going on between the two of them. After opening the package, there's again tissue paper with a card on top and another poem. Roses are red, violets are blue. One is dead and so are you. We get an extreme close-up of Mabel's eyes just before the killer lunges out at her and she fights for her life as he backs her further and further into the launderette. She falls down but then gets herself back up and for a second it looks like she might get away. But just as she makes it into the back part of the laundromat, the killer grabs her by the hair and pulls her back to him. He throws her onto the ground and kills her with the pickaxe. We then get a stationary shot of the exterior of Madame Mabel's launderette and everything has gone dark and quiet. We leave the laundromat and we're now at a junkyard where Mike, Hollis, and Howard are gathered around an old car, the engine of which Hollis is using to slowly cook microwave dinners. I love this little detail, especially because you know these guys all have homes. It's not like they have to use an old car engine to cook their food. They just feel like it, and that makes me happy. We get another slow POV shot of the guys, which makes its way through the junkyard to another old car some distance away, where Axel is sitting alone playing the harmonica. And the song that he's playing here is a pretty somber one, which I think speaks to Axel's character and what he is going through throughout the course of this film. The song is interrupted, however, by a jump scare from a hand holding what I think is a bottle of bourbon. 
It's TJ, offering Axel a drink and asking him to scoot over so he can join him. Axel does scoot over, but he actually scoots over to the extreme, standing up out of the car and just leaning against it while TJ sits in the driver's seat beside him. They trade the bottle back and forth, and Axel returns to his harmonica, this time playing a much more upbeat song, which TJ joins in on because he's TJ, and of course he just has a harmonica hanging out in his coat pocket. The two play together for a few brief moments, and Axel eventually stops looking pretty melancholy. And the two have a little conversation about their love triangle. TJ asks, what are we going to do about our situation? And Axel gets, again, pretty defensive and says there isn't anything to do. Sarah is dating him now, and it's on him to deal with that. He also tells TJ he needs to back off and reminds him that it's his fault that all of this is happening. TJ tells Axel that it's really TJ that Sarah wants. Axel seems deeply hurt by this, and he doesn't storm off so much as he just sort of, like, Charlie Brown walks away. And soon afterward, TJ is joined at the car by Holly. The two of them have an equally interesting conversation that's one of my favorite exchanges of dialogue in the film, because although TJ is clearly angry, you know, he's back in a town that he, he doesn't really feel at home in. He came home hoping to find his girlfriend, uh, only to learn that she is now dating one of his friends. But as frustrated as he is with the situation, when he's talking with Hollis about it, all he's really remembering are the good times that he and Axel and the rest of the gang had. And he explains that he doesn't know what to do because he knows that this isn't Axel's fault. During this conversation, I also get the impression that Axel hasn't gone too far because we hear the sad song from the harmonica swell once again in the distance. Back in town the next morning, Chief Newby has gotten through to the administrative office at Eastfield Hospital, but he isn't happy about what he's discovered. The woman he speaks to tells him that she has no record of Harry Warden, that even though he was admitted on a court order, a lot can happen in 20 years, and that because she has no record of him, he was either transferred, released, or he died. And the lack of record is enough to convince the mayor that, in fact, Harry Warden has returned. He then tells Chief Newby that they're going to have to cancel the dance. Meanwhile, Sarah and Patty are walking down Main Street talking about Sarah's predicament of being torn between Axel and TJ. It's a nice, realistic conversation during which Sarah alludes to just not wanting to deal with it at all and being done with both of them. Then we cut to the laundrette where Chief Newby has arrived to tell Mabel the bad news that they have to cancel the dance, but he can't find her. However, behind him, as he's crossing to the back of the building, we do see uh, what looks like some pretty bloody blood coating one of the windows of a dryer that's running. Chief Newby turns back around and sees a paper heart taped upside down on one of the washers. And I really like that because it does seem pretty ominous, given how many Valentine's Day decorations there are all over this town and how devoted Mabel was to them. There is something very odd in this context about a paper heart taped upside down. The chief looks concerned and starts looking around, only to realize that quite a few of the paper hearts have been turned upside down and it is giving him the Wiggins. He starts checking out some of the clothes in the dryers, and quite suddenly, for really no reason, the dryer that looked like it was coated in blood pops open and out falls a very charred Mabel. Now, I don't remember exactly when we see her body in greater detail for a longer period of time as it's being sort of flopped around by the dryer. I'm assuming it was right there, but because it's been so long since I've seen the restored version of the film, my memory is a little spotty, but it's somewhere around here in the extended version of the film that we get a much bigger eyeful of just what happened to Mabel. It's disturbing and also, in retrospect, a little hilarious. Back in the tunnels of the Hanager mine, things continue to escalate between TJ and Axel. Axel is giving TJ an order, which TJ is defiantly kind of refusing to follow, and the two of them actually do almost come to blows. The foreman shows up, however, and breaks up the fight, ordering TJ back up to the surface. Back at the laundrette again, Mabel's body is being carted out, and both the chief and the mayor look equally depressed and disgusted. I also really like that Mayor Hanager comments on the 
smell. It's just one of those tiny details that I always appreciate in horror films. The chief makes an executive decision to have the ambulance moved around to the back of the laundromat so that Mabel can be carried out more discreetly and tells everyone that the official word on Mabel's death is that she died of a heart attack. He checks Mabel's body one last time and realizes that inside her chest cavity is a paper heart. He tells the paramedics to take the body away and reads what is now our third poem from the killer. It happened once. It happened twice. Cancel a dancer, it'll happen thrice. At this, the mayor completely falls apart and he's like, that's it, we're done. We're taking all the decorations down, there will be no dance. And the chief agrees. He locks up Union Hall to the dismay of everyone and plays it off as a simple show of respect in the wake of Mabel's death. Of course, Sylvia makes an excellent point, which was that Mabel worked really hard on the dance and she would have wanted them to celebrate it. But Chief Newby stands his ground and the dance is officially canceled. Sometime later at Hanager Mine, TJ is clocking out and Axel emerges from below and reminds him that they have a score to settle. TJ hurries to his car, however, and drives away before they can have another confrontation. And that's because TJ's on a mission. He has gone to the grocery store uh, where Sarah was last seen, or perhaps works, I'm not entirely sure, and kidnaps her. He hurries her out of the store and takes her to his car where she tells him that she doesn't want to go with him. However, she says this with a big smile on her face and he just ushers her into the car, shuts the door, and drives off to what I think is some kind of a ravine. Um, you can see the mine in the distance, but it's, it seems to be pretty far out from town. This spot is apparently significant to their relationship, and the two finally have a conversation about why TJ left town and why he chose not to contact her while he was away. He went out there to make something of himself, and he didn't, and he just couldn't bear to face her or the reality of that. He begs her to forgive him, and the two share a passionate kiss. Look, give me a chance. If you still want me to go away, I will. But I have to tell you that I love you, and I want you back. Back at the cage, Axel is playing some kind of air hockey game. It looks sort of like air hockey, but it also looked like he was playing it alone, so I don't know. TJ comes into the bar and Axel leaves his game to ask him if he's seen her, and he tells her that it's not his job to pay attention to her whereabouts. Later that night, Sarah is walking home alone, cursing herself for kissing TJ. She starts getting freaked out by noises and the wind and is ultimately startled by Chief Newby. Newby looks unsettled and Sarah picks up on this and he assures her that everything's all right. It's an exchange that's very reminiscent of Lori and Sheriff Brackett from Halloween. We cut to the cage again, where Happy is insisting that Mabel did not die of a heart attack and our main cast is lamenting the canceling of the dance. Howard then suggests that they have their own Valentine's Day party and TJ, who thinks that's a great idea, says, why don't we do it at the mine? Not in the mine, but but at the mine. Axel seems a little uncomfortable at the idea and Happy, of course, tells them over and over again that they are idiots and assholes who are not paying attention and that they are going to die, but everybody else is on board. Later that evening, two things happen. Chief Newbie goes to Hanager Mine to check it out, but then apparently thinks better of that and then just leaves. Well, Happy... <laughs> now off work, drunkenly sets a Harry Warden-style trap to prank the kids for not heeding his warning. And it's hilarious because he's so wasted and he just keeps, it's like a Harry Warden dummy with a pickaxe tied to its arm and it's set on a spring so that whenever you open the door, the pickaxe comes shooting out of it. And he's so excited about it, he just keeps opening the door to check to make sure it works and cackling because he's so pleased with himself and then shutting it again. He starts to walk away but decides to check 
it one last time. This, of course, being the fatal check, where when he opens the door, the Harry Warden gag is gone and has been replaced by the actual killer. Happy takes a pickaxe to the chin in one of the most memorable kills of the film, and this was most certainly edited out of the theatrical version. So when the pickaxe goes up into his chin, the tip of it comes out of Happy's eye socket, popping his eyeball out. And then the miner can't quite get the pickaxe out right away, so he just uses the pickaxe to drag Happy's body away. It's amazing. We fade to black and open again on Saturday, February 14th, Valentine's Day. We see a rogue paper heart with streamers attached to it blowing across the street as Chief Newby and the mayor look somberly and concernedly on. Meanwhile, the gang arrives at the mine, setting their party up at the workers' cafeteria or diner or what have you. While they do that, Chief Newby checks in with one of his officers at the police station asking if anything's up. What the officer says is, no, everything's been quiet. However, somebody left a package for you. And there it is, a heart-shaped box sitting on Chief Newby's desk. He sends the officer away and slowly, fearfully, opens it. It isn't a human heart, however, but an actual box of chocolates. At first, he laughs at himself for having gotten all worked up over nothing, but when he opens the card, he realizes that the gift came from Mabel, and this understandably makes him quite sad. I love Don Franks' face in that moment. It's just, there's a lot of weight to his reaction. Back at the diner, many hijinks ensue, and TJ walks in wearing... <laughs> we have to talk about what TJ's wearing. He's wearing... A blue button-down shirt with the top three buttons undone. And over top of that is a blue flannel. And around his neck is a blue bandana. This man is wearing at least four different shades of blue that I can see. And it's really working for him. Not long after he arrives, Sarah and Axel show up and everybody just gets drunk and has a really good time. Meanwhile, Sylvia and John break away from the pre-party early to have a little fun by themselves. Champion side character Dave wanders into the kitchen where he finds a pot of hot dogs and is having himself a taste when someone grabs him by the back of the head and plunges it into the boiling water. This is another kill that I highly recommend watching the extended version of. We cut quickly back to the police station where Chief Newby is still clearly wrestling with his grief over Mabel when he hears a ruckus outside. Out on the street, a pack of stray dogs is lapping hungrily at a bloody heart-shaped box on the sidewalk. He leans down to pick up yet another card, but this time the card doesn't contain a poem, but a simple sentence, you didn't stop the party. Chief Newby panics, having absolutely no idea to what the card is referring, and picks up the box, covering his hands in blood. At the diner, Howard is hamming it up and uh, snorting Moosehead beer into his nose. That's how much they love Moosehead beer. Axel is getting really grabby and possessed possessive with Sarah in a way that's making her super uncomfortable, and TJ eventually interferes, which given the volatile nature of their situation, it doesn't take long for it to escalate into another fight. Axel tries to speak for Sarah, which Sarah shoots down, telling him that she has her own mouth, and TJ says, well, why don't you use it? She then gets completely pissed off and says, you know what? To hell with both of you. And the boys finally just start punching each other. The fight is broken up by Hollis, who is just amazing. It's not just the man's mustache, by the way. Hollis is just great. He just puts off such good friend, good human vibes. Axel storms out of the diner, and TJ goes to Sarah, apologizing again, after which Sarah kind of collapses on his shoulder and then tells him that she just doesn't care anymore and wants to be left alone. Howard tries to raise everyone's spirits back up by you know, snorting more moosehead beer. We then get a short but powerful scene of Axel having a kind of breakdown, just slumping up against a building and bursting out into tears. Down in the mine, John and Sylvia, who disappeared from the diner earlier, are making out on a couple of benches in what I 
think is like the dressing area for the mine. There's this cool moment where we see a bunch of jumpsuits hanging from the ceiling and there are ropes that you can pull that send the jumpsuits down. They fall on the couple's heads, which makes them laugh. And Sylvia tells John that they need some beer. Sylvia gets cozy on the blanket and waits for John to return. Now, I'm not entirely certain of the layout of the mine. But what I gather is you have the tunnels below, obviously, and then on the top floor where TJ was clocking out, I think that's where the communal showers and the sort of dressing area are. John goes back to the restaurant and talks a little bit with TJ before we cut to Gretchen and another girl back in the kitchen still working on the hot dogs. Evidently, the killer was able to boil Dave's face and stuff him into the refrigerator without anybody being the wiser, but he did leave something behind. While Gretchen is pulling hot dogs out of the pot and putting them on the buns, she pulls out out a human heart. But it looks so strange and foreign to them. They know that it's gross, but their mind doesn't immediately go to, oh my god, there's a killer at the mine. This is a human heart that someone put in here. It's just this big gross hunk of meat and Gretchen sets it aside while John indicates that it was probably Howard playing a prank. Back with Sylvia, who's lying there, presumably thinking about John, she's staring up at the mining jumpsuits that are hanging from the ceiling and the way they're swaying back and forth is starting to freak her out. She's also hearing noises and we get this excellent panning shot of her as she kind of gets progressively more and more concerned. She hears water running. We see a couple of quick shots of someone with gloves turning all of the showers on at once. Instead of immediately going in to investigate the shower, she just gets up and backs away. Suddenly, jumpsuits start falling from everywhere, all over the ceiling, and it's a really great sequence that if I were her, I would be fucking terrified. She fights her way through them, screaming for help, but gets disoriented and lost because she is now navigating a maze of floppy minor suits. And not only that, but among them falls Happy's body, which is no longer impaled on a pickaxe, but instead what looks like a fish hook, like a very large fish hook. This drives Sylvia over the edge and when she turns around, the killer grabs her by the head. I think this is an interesting little callback to when we're first introduced to her character, when John picks her up by the head to kiss her, because that's pretty much exactly what the killer is doing here, only instead of kissing her, he carries her into the showers and impales her on a pipe. This is definitely one of the coolest effects in the film, um, again, cut from the theatrical version, where when the water is fed through that particular pipe, it essentially turns Sylvia into a human water fountain. John returns with the beer, apologizing for taking too long because, as I have mentioned, this film is nothing if not polite, and he notices that all of the showers are running. Rather than be freaked out by this, he thinks that it's Sylvia trying to seduce him and starts undressing and looking around for her. And this is when we see that her head has been turned into a fountain. However, in the theatrical release, we really only see it sort of blurred and behind from the side, and we just see John's melodramatic reaction to it. It's a great reaction, don't get me wrong. It's just, I, I really prefer being able to see that effect in all of its glory. At the front gate of the mine, Chief Newby has arrived, having felt compelled to check the place out. But just as he pulls up, his officer radios that Eastfield Hospital has called with an urgent message about Harry Warden. So Newby turns around and heads back into town, still unaware of the party. At the diner, a few of the ladies, including Sarah, are asking questions about the mine and convince Hollis to take them down to see it for themselves. TJ objects to this, saying it's too dangerous, but Hollis insists he's just going to take them down the elevator and back up. TJ looks worried, but ultimately gives up and lets them do their thing. So we have six characters piling into a mine cart, getting ready to make their way down into the mine. It's Hollis, Howard, 
Mike, Patty, Sarah, and a girl named Harriet. Everybody cozies up in blankets with lanterns as Hollis powers up the minecart and they make their way down. As I mentioned, this was an actual functional minecart and it is not the last time that we will see it put to good use. I think it's so fun to just watch these characters pile into it like it's a hayride or something. Hey, hold on everybody, here we go. Keep your hands inside. And pass me that beer. All right. We also have a really great shot where the camera is attached to the front of the minecart and we're seeing the characters' reactions to the speed and it's just, it's great. So the minecart stops and Hollis says, okay, I hope you guys liked it because we're going right back up. But Harriet becomes very intrigued by one of the long tunnels and says, hey, Hollis, on second thought, why not take us on a tour? And he says, you know, since we're here, I might as well. So they proceed deeper into the mine. And Hollis is giving them a kind of guided tour, explaining to them certain terms that they use for certain equipment and, you know, what different parts of the mine used to be what? It's fucking adorable. But it isn't enough to hold the attention of Mike and Harriet, who have some serious making out to do, so they break away from the group and find a make-out appropriate room. Upworld at the diner, Gretchen discovers Dave's body in the fridge, and now it becomes clear to everyone that something hinky is happening at Hanager Mine. Gretchen is screaming her head off, Axel runs to check it out, and right at that moment, John comes back in shambles, declaring that Sylvia is dead. Axel comes back out of the kitchen, confirming that Dave is dead also, and everybody's starts freaking out. TJ hops on the phone, or tries to anyway, to discover that the line is dead, and he runs over to Tommy, telling him that he needs to get to town and get the chief. TJ then tells Axel that Sarah is down in the mine with Hollis and the others. TJ and Axel suit up and head down the elevator to rescue their friends, Axel, of course, having to talk a little bit of shit before they head down there. They also, like, grab hands and wish each other good luck, so this is what I'm talking about, man. Like, they hate each other, but they love each other at the same time, and I just, I absolutely love their relationship. Down below, Patty and Sarah gets separated from Hollis for a moment, who pops back up for another little jump scare, and the three of them continue on with Hollis's guided tour. He explains to them that they are now in the oldest part of the mine, which has been abandoned ever since the incident with Harry Warden. At that moment, Howard falls down from the ceiling, scaring the ever-living hell out of Hollis, and it's hilarious. Howard! <laughs> what do you think you're trying to do, you jerk? Easy, I got a hangover. <laughs> I have no idea how he knew that they would be coming down that tunnel at that moment. It's completely ridiculous, but I... I think it's awesome. <laughs> Hollis helps Howard down from where he had been hanging, and Patty asks where Mike and Harriet went. We get another nice POV shot, accompanied by some heavy breathing, as the kids walk away to look for them. Speaking of Mike and Harriet, they are now cozied up in their own little private quarter of the mine, just making out as we expected they would. After some time, Patty stops again, wondering aloud where Mike and Harriet could have gone. At that moment, we hear a crash in the distance, which stops them all in their tracks, and then we see that the killer is now making his way through the tunnels, smashing out all of the lights with his pickaxe. Hollis tells the gang that it's time that they find Mike and Harriet and get out of there, as Tommy, Gretchen, John, and a few others arrive back in town to tell Chief Newby everything that's happened. You have to go to the mine. We were having a party and Harry Warden started killing everybody. Hopping in his car, he turns on his sirens and hauls ass to Hanniger Mine. He also gets on the radio and tells his officer to call Mayor Hanniger and just anyone because he thinks there might be kids trapped in the tunnels. Down below, Hollis and the others are calling out to Mike and Harriet when they run into TJ, who tells them that Harry Warden is back and he's pretty sure he's somewhere in the mine. Howard reminds everybody about Mike and Harriet, and TJ and Hollis split up to search for them, instructing Howard to stay with the girls. Howard is not happy about this, mostly because he's just an apprentice and doesn't know his way around this abandoned part of the mine. Also, I finally caved to my curiosity and looked into mining apprenticeships, and basically, from what I understand, and please feel free 
to correct me if I've gotten this wrong, all of my coal mining listeners out there, I know there are just tons of you. A mining apprentice is a paid employee who works down in the mine just like everybody else, but does so as part of extensive hands-on training that can last up to or around four years. Today, mining apprenticeships pay an average of $1,400 a week, which was around $450 to $500 in 1981. So in short, Howard was making more money as an apprentice back then than I do now. Although I imagine it still wouldn't even come close to compensating him for the severe health risks and long-term dangers of the job of coal mining. Hollis goes to the engine room where he last saw Mike and Harriet and finds them there, impaled together on a very large screw, some might say appropriately. He's horrified, but it takes him several long seconds to process what he's seeing and what it means. This is definitely at the top of my list of favorite reactions to seeing dead bodies. And we get a close-up shot of the killer loading nails into what looks like an industrial strength nail gun. Hollis then takes two nails to the skull, one in the temple and one lobotomy style, but this isn't enough to take him down right away because Hollis is a fucking champion. He stumbles out of the room and makes his way back to Howard and the girls before finally collapsing giving them a few precious moments to prepare themselves and sending them into a state of totally understandable panic. Patty sees Hollis and falls to pieces, which I just, you really, again, the time that they spent on casting likable characters and showing you all of these little seemingly innocuous moments between the couples, you really feel Patty's pain right there. In the distance, the killer arrives, walking toward them with great purpose in a way that doesn't really make a whole lot of sense if you consider where Hollis came from. The killer should have been behind him, but you know, it's forgivable. And at first, none of them are quite sure what they're seeing, but Howard realizes pretty quickly that the man walking toward them is not friendly. He tries to get the girls to follow him, but Patty will not leave Hollis, and Sarah won't leave Patty, so Howard runs away. Rather than continuing to come toward the girls, the killer turns right and goes to head off Howard. Meanwhile, Sarah tries to snap Patty out of it, eventually smacking her, and Patty breaks down crying. It's really fucking sad. Sarah gets her up on her feet, and the two are terrified by the sudden appearance of Axel. Again, also coming from a direction that I just really don't think that he could have, knowing what's to come. But again, it's one of those things where I kind of buy it, you know, because this is sort of a maze down here, and the miners know their way around. So, I mean, it doesn't take much of a suspension of disbelief to say, all right, maybe Axel knew of a way to very quickly get from where he had been a few moments ago. Anyway, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But at this point, once they're down in the mines, it does sort of just seem like all roads lead to wherever the characters are at that moment. Uh, the girls tell Axel that Harry Warden has returned, and he very calmly tells them that it's time to get going. Patty is still in tears, and Sarah is attempting to hold her up. As they make their way deeper into the mines, Axel telling them that he's taking them back to the elevator. We get this excellent shot, a very scary one in my opinion, of the three of them making their way down one tunnel as the silhouette of a fully geared miner with the headlamp is coming down from a sort of sloped tunnel and both are separated by a wall. It's just very cool. We see the miner on the right side, the three on the other. Axel tells the girls to stop because he heard a noise and prepares himself to hit whoever it is that he hears coming. He does, and it turns out that the miner he hits is TJ. His helmet comes flying off and Sarah immediately runs to hold him up. Axel apologizes and the four continue to make their way out of the tunnels. TJ leaves the gang with Axel bringing up the rear, and the girls are kind of holding on to each other as they continue their ascent. When they get to the elevator, TJ realizes that it's, it's not there. The elevator's gone, and the control panel has been 
smashed. TJ says as a result, there's no way they're getting out of there. Axel says, however, that they can climb. There is an incredibly high ladder. I can only imagine how long it would actually take to climb that ladder out of the mine, given that it's like a thousand yards deep. Paul Kelman once recollected that it took about 10 to 15 minutes to ride the elevator down into the mine for filmings. Can you imagine? But they, they do. They start climbing. And before long, Patty stops and is like, I cannot do this anymore. Is there any other way? And Axel, who has switched places with TJ in that he is now sort of leading the charge and TJ's bringing up the rear, is climbing a little bit too fast. And Patty keeps stopping. So Sarah is calling up to Axel that he needs to slow down. From a writer's perspective, I think this is such a great way to build and maintain suspense through what is on paper a pretty simplistic scene. It's just four people climbing a never-ending ladder. The shots are tight. The angles are limited. There isn't anyone actively pursuing them that we can see, but Patty's fear of heights, Axel's haste, Sarah's desperation to both help Patty and keep everyone together, it all works so well in creating and holding panic in place for the audience. I love the communication between the characters in this scene. Cynthia Dale and Laurie Hallier's performances are just completely on point. If I haven't made this clear, I'm, I'm a big fan of the latter scene in this movie. Patty eventually becomes so frightened that it petrifies her. She stops again and just clings to the ladder, shouting that she cannot keep going. And Sarah positions herself behind her, so they're climbing together. Yet still more excellent friending from the folks of Valentine Bluffs. However, their efforts are undercut as Howard's body falls down beside them, tied to a noose, and in the restored version of the film, his head just pops right the fuck off. We get a shot of his headless body just thumping down onto the ground. This, understandably, is like the last straw for Patty. Believing that Harry Warden is now at the top of the ladder, they immediately all start climbing back down. Oh, also Sarah and Patty got splattered with blood. And you know, I must say, although, as I mentioned, Sarah is not exactly one of my all-time favorite final girls, if you are a fan of that utterly disheveled, makeup-smeared, blood-splattered look that many final girls wear ever so well, then you will love Lori Hallier in this film, as well as Cynthia Dale. They just, they look fantastic. I just, I have to tip my hat to Louise Rundell and Carolyn Van Gerp of the makeup department, who just did such a great job of ruining the makeup on these girls. As they are running to try to find another way out, Axel says he knows a shortcut through the sump. Now, sump is a word that they use a few times throughout the film, and I had absolutely no idea what it meant, so I looked that up too. And in mining, the term sump describes a hole in the floor uh, in the direction of a lower level, often used for the purpose of ventilation. So basically, from what I gather, it just means a, a big hole in the ground. That's, that's what a sump is. Axel tells TJ to take the girls ahead and to call for him when they get across it or through it or over it. I don't know, man, things get a little muddled in the mine. <laughs> Once they're clear of the sump, TJ calls out to Axel and we hear Axel groaning, after which the gang goes rushing back to help him to discover that one of the wooden barriers protecting them from this like 60 foot deep cavern of water has been broken and they see bubbles. So they assume that he fell in and TJ says that it's just too late, that it's 60 feet deep. There's no way they're going to save him. So they leave and continue to make their way toward whatever exit they can find. TJ stops them and tells them to hug the wall and just keep going, then leaves them to go check something out. As the girls continue to try to find their way out, eventually the killer reemerges, shoving a pickaxe through Patty's stomach. We get an 
awesome shot of Sarah's reaction of that, by the way, with the light from the mining helmet just shining right in her face. It's fantastic. The pickaxe kind of gets lodged in Patty's stomach and it takes the killer a second to get it out of there. This seems to be a recurring theme with this killer. I don't think he quite thinks his pickaxing's through. Sarah takes a second to process what's just happened to her friend and then runs away. Up top, Chief Newby has arrived with the cavalry. I'm assuming like the entire population of Valentine Bluff, given how many cars are with him. And Sarah has stopped to further process everything that's happened and kind of hide, but not very effectively. As she is standing there crying, we see a gloved hand coming out toward her, and it turns out to belong to TJ, who holds her and attempts to calm her down. And the look on his face is wonderful. Have I mentioned how much I love Paul Kelman? He bundles Sarah up in his arms and walks her away, and his head is bleeding, and Sarah asks him about it, and he says, it's fine, I just got hit, but he doesn't explain what or who hit him, which does raise a momentary question about what exactly has been happening down here in this mine. Where the fuck was TJ, and what hit you? I do like how disorienting everything is. It lends well to not really knowing exactly who the killer is until the big reveal. I don't know what everyone else's experience was with this film, but I do remember distinctly that when I first saw it, I had no idea who the killer was. I kind of thought everybody did it. And I think that it's moments like that, with TJ having the blood on his head and not explaining where he went, Axel telling everyone to go ahead. I even at one point thought that Howard was the killer. Of course, that also could have been because I had only seen the theatrical version and didn't realize that he was just straight up decapitated. <laughs> that might have... That might have put a dent in that theory for me. Anyway, the point is, things are really weird down here in the mine. And yeah, you could chalk it up to like B-movie craftsmanship, but in my opinion, the lack of clear details works in the film's favor. So TJ and Sarah have found their way to the mining cart, and they're trying to get it working when the killer arrives. And Sarah is just sort of staring at him in a way that I can't really describe, but I really like. Lori Hallier's entire performance in the third act of the film, it really stands out. We just don't really get Get to see a whole lot of her prior to these moments. But man, she really knows how to freak out, <laughs> and I appreciate her for that. TJ does get the minecart working as the killer advances, so he and Sarah jump into the cart with the killer close behind. They really made excellent use of the camera when it came to the minecart scenes. And I mean, this was actually pretty dangerous for them to shoot. These carts are going like 30, 40 miles an hour, and they're actually running around on them. But it's not something that we've ever really seen in a horror movie before or since, so it just feels very unique and refreshing and exciting. The killer catches up to them, and he and TJ have a bit of a scuffle on the minecart, but eventually topple out of it with Sarah in tow. And when the search party makes their way down into the cart shaft, I don't know mining terms, but when the cavalry makes their way down uh, into the tunnel that contains the mine cart, they find the cart empty. So they just continue making their way into the mine. Meanwhile, the killer is continuing to advance on TJ, who is protecting both himself and Sarah with a shovel, and they back up into a ventilation shaft that's boarded up with a sign that says, danger, keep out. The guys have a pretty epic shovel versus pickaxe battle, and the killer keeps sort of haphazardly swinging his pickaxe in a way that is bringing the mine down around them. Meanwhile, Sarah picks up a giant rock and bashes the killer over the head with it, and it's one of the more exciting moments for me. And that's one of the best things about Sarah. She's very tough. TJ falls backward and Sarah goes to help him up, and at that moment, as the killer is finally closing in, Sarah makes a quick and very smart decision, which is to reach up and rip the respirator mask off of the killer, revealing that it is not Harry Warden, but instead, Axel. 
Axel is momentarily stunned by this reveal, as well as TJ's reaction, which is to simply say his name and ask him why. And then we get a flashback of that supervisor we saw being killed 20 years earlier by Harry Warden. While Harry was murdering the supervisor, his young son, Axel, was hiding under the bed, watching it happen. We then get a shot of the little boy curled up under the bed, sucking his thumb, covered in blood. Axel doesn't say any of this out loud, however, so this isn't actually a question that is answered for TJ or Sarah, uh, but it does stun him long enough that TJ is able to take another large rock and bash him over the head with it. TJ and Sarah get to their feet, and as they do, Axel runs into yet another beam from the mine. The mine has taken all of the damage that it can in this scuffle and collapses all around Axel. TJ and Sarah reemerge into the cart tunnel, just in time to run into Chief Newbie, the mayor, and the rest of the rescue party. TJ tells them that it isn't Harry Warden, and Newbie tells him that he knows that it isn't Harry because the call he received from Eastfield Hospital was to let them know that Harry Warden had died there five years ago. So the mayor asks TJ who did it, and TJ says that it was Axel. Chief Newbie tells TJ and Sarah to get out of there, and the mayor turns to Chief Newbie and says it was on Valentine's Day that Harry Warden kills Axel's father, which suggests to me that he knew this all along and never told anyone. <laughs> it's like the one problem that I have with the film. I don't expect that the mayor would have just immediately suspected that it was Axel, but I feel like if the Harry Warden incident is being brought up, maybe someone needs to be aware of the connection between Axel and that supervisor who was murdered. Why did nobody in town know this except for the mayor? I feel like it was just a line thrown in there to clarify things for the audience in case they didn't quite you know, get it? It's the only complaint that I have about the film. The only one. Newbie and the mayor head into the ventilation shaft to assess the wreckage, while TJ and Sarah share a tender moment before heading back out of the tunnel. The cavalry start making their way through the wreckage and eventually come upon a hand reaching out through the beams and brick. And that hand, of course, belongs to Axel. What we don't see in the theatrical version is that Axel is actually cutting his own arm off to escape into the other direction of the mine which is just brutal and amazing. We do see in the theatrical version that he is missing his arm, but we don't actually see how his arm got separated from him. <laughs> Sarah hears all of the commotion and realizing now that Axel survived, runs back to the ventilation shaft because she just, she has to see him, which I completely understand. I've heard people comment that that bothers them, but it doesn't bother me. If he had been my boyfriend, even if he was a psychotic killer and then had, you know, been buried alive in a cave-in in a mine, I would want to talk to the guy. I'd have some questions. Now, free from the cave-in and separated from the rescue party by the debris, Axel gets up and makes his way further and further into the mine. As he goes, he laughs maniacally, talks some shit, sings a creepy song, and tells Sarah to be his bloody valentine. We fade to black and hear an excellent maniacal laugh, which leads into the end credit song. This song, which is called The Ballad of Harry Warden, was, from what I understand, written kind of at the last minute by Paul Zaza, and I think it is a very fitting way to end the film. Well, the legend they say on a Valentine's Day is a curse that'll live on and on. So that's it. That's My Bloody Valentine. I can't stress enough, this is just one of my favorite slasher films. It has everything that I look for in the subgenre. It has a cast of characters that I love, a lot of really great bloody deaths, especially if you watch the restored version, an excellent score, a wonderful setting, interesting premise. It's got charm, it makes me laugh, it also kind of makes me want to cry a couple of times, and it's rife with beautifully eerie visuals. It really is one of a kind in several ways. I have rarely ever seen a horror film that packs this much 
much into such a short period of time, or quite so uniquely. I guess I didn't talk about the remake nearly as much as I thought I would, and I... I mean, I... I guess I, it's like a sorry-not-sorry sorry situation. I don't really apologize. The remake of this film, in my opinion, is fucking terrible. I am not a fan at all. I feel like everything that gave this movie its heart and its charm and even the terror, it was all gone in the remake. That was all just gutted out. The one decision that they made, and, and I did talk about this, the one decision that they made in the remake that I, I really did enjoy was that they changed the identity of the killer entirely. So instead of Axel being the killer in the 2009 version, the TJ character is. And what I really enjoyed about that was that it was the one moment in the film where it actually felt like they were taking fans of the original into account. If you had seen the original and you went into the remake, you would be expecting that exact same reveal. So the fact that they just made it TJ was awesome. Unfortunately, everything else about the movie is just so awful and disrespectful to its source that it's just, it's really hard to, to praise it just on that decision alone. But hey, I do feel I have to give credit where credit is due. For all of the things that I've talked about tonight and dozens of other reasons, the original My Bloody Valentine will always be, to me, the superior film. everyone out there is having a bloody good Valentine's Day, and I hope that you enjoyed my thoughts on my bloody Valentine. I never really know how these deep dives are going to go, because sometimes I do like an extensive amount of research, and I approach it as academically as possible, and then other times I'm just like, this film's great, and it's got some really great shots, and oh my god, I absolutely love Paul Kelman, he's so fucking hot. Sometimes I go a little bit more fangirl with it, and I feel like I kind of did that this time, but I really hope that you enjoyed it regardless. If you've listened this far into the episode, consider joining the Final Girl Friday Discord. You'll find an open invitation to it in the description of this podcast on anchor.fm, or you can head over to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Final Girl Friday and kick in a couple of bucks. Help me soundproof my apartment because I have the loudest heater in the history of heaters making noise. I am actually sitting in a fort that I made of every blanket I own just to try to reduce some of the noise from the heater. However, I also know that times is crazy right now and I do not expect anybody to contribute financially to this podcast. You can also look me up on the Slasher app. My username is Final Girl Friday or contact me at finalgirlconfessions at gmail.com. There are a few things that give me more pleasure in life than discussing movies with others. So I would love to hear your thoughts on My Bloody Valentine or the remake, you know? In fact, if you enjoyed My Bloody Valentine 3D, from 2009, I would love to hear why. I am always game for having my mind changed, so I, I would love to hear some positive feedback about that film. Before I wrap up, I do want to read a few of the answers that you guys gave me for the special Valentine's Day edition of Worst Case Scenario. Worst Case Scenario is a silly little thing where I pose a hypothetical question relevant to the horror genre all over social media and read my favorite responses. So I kept things simple for this week, I just wanted it to kind of be Valentine's Day themed, so the Worst Case scenario for the week is your favorite horror movie villain has left a Valentine's Day gift at your door. What did they leave you? Stranger 666 said Candyman brought by some of his artisan honey, which I think would just be, I mean, that would be an amazing present. Like, I don't even think I would be scared at that point. I'd just be like, fuck yeah, and I'd go make some toast. Alistair Sharkwater said Graboid left a baby shrieker. <laughs> then when it explodes, I mean, if it drives him away, we run like goddamn bastards. Uh, pardon my French. 
Sackhead, Madness, and Monica Guts all gave answers that were essentially either human flesh or body parts, and that makes me really happy. Amanda said a cool hockey mask and maybe a coupon for diving classes. I'm going to assume that that is a Jason Voorhees gift. Scream Queen on the Discord said Hannibal would leave me a really nice meal in fancy insulated containers. Would I eat it? Absolutely not. I think you might be missing out just a little. I mean, if you had a meal prepared for you by Hannibal's hands, wouldn't you be obligated to try it? Just a little, just a little bite? Just a tiny little nibble? Jason just simply posted a gift of Pandora's box. Good luck with that, buddy. And then my favorite response came from Gory Rory over on Slasher. And he said, Nehemiah Easterday, the lumberjack man, left a stack of six-foot-wide flapjacks with blood for syrup. And to be clear, these are wholesomely, horrifically homemade. Not those instant ones from the thieving, murdering, business-savvy J.T. Jepson. Because if you think those are pancakes, you don't know what pancakes is. Thank you so much for all of your responses, guys. And if you haven't seen The Lumberjack Man, um, please do yourself a favor and uh, and watch it. And yeah, with any luck, I'll talk to you guys in another couple of weeks. I have no idea what I'm going to talk about next. I'm just sort of bumbling through this year with very little plans. Thanks so much for listening, guys. Stay safe. Stay sane. Make sure your pickaxe doesn't get stuck in your victim's face. And as always, creep it real. <laughs> <laughs>